You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? Yeah. Guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with my friend, Josh Radner, we got to take care of a little bit of business, okay? First things first, axe wax. You need something for your hammers, your axes, your handles, your wood, your steel. I'm telling you, you're fooling around. Go get yourself some all-natural food-safe Axe Wax, and you can put in promo code FULLBLAST10 when you go to AxeWax.us, get 10% off your order. Or if you're in the UK, you go to UKKnifeSupplier.com. Toby's going to take care of you, too, with the Full Blast 10. If you're in Australia, NordicEdge.com.au, they're taking care of the Full Blast 10. And if you're in the EU, my buddy, Keith Colby, over at KnifeMaterial.at, he's going to take care of you with the Full Blast 10. Okay? Get yourself some Axe Wax. Next thing I have to tell you is, you guys, it's a new year. So you got to stop being so cheap, okay? Because you're playing yourself. You need to fool around with a new website. And I want you to do is I want you to go to akinteractive.com slash full blast. And when you fill out the paperwork, you're going to automatically get 10% off your order. And Andreas Kalani is going to get you squared away. He's going to fix your new website or he's going to fix your existing website. He's going to fix your logo design. He's going to fix whatever you need. Because let's be honest, you're playing around the DMs and that's for suckers, okay? You can't do business and the DMs don't work. I'm telling you. Go get yourself a good new website. Go get your website fixed up. akinteractive.com slash full blast. Last but not least, I cannot thank Trojan Horse Forge enough for sending me their... Don't worry, Josh. I know you don't know what any of this shit is. Don't worry about that. I got you. The Trojan Horse Forge makes the uh, the stable rail knife finishing vice. This is a a knife vice for knife makers, but I think you have the wrong opinion. It's not just for the handles. Most people think knife vices are for handles. That's not the case here. The knife... The stable rail knife vise is also, it's really, a, it's a complete sand, hand sanding fixture for your knives. You can put on blades, you can you can you, uh, hand sand blades, you can hand sand the, the, the handles. You can, it supports your distal taper, it supports your integral bolster, it supports, if you're making a kukri's, don't, you don't know about a kukri, Josh, you know what a kukri is? You don't know what a kukri is? So kukri, don't worry about that. So it's a curved blade. We'll get you squared away with that. And if you go to trojanhorseforge.com, you'll be able to get yourself in on the new knife vices. You should definitely go to get to that. Thank you, Trojan Horse Forge. I really appreciate it. And that's it for that. Without any further ado, I've been waiting for this for a long time. My next guest, you may know 
from the the he's a singer songwriter he's a he's an actor he's made the movie liberal arts you might know him from that you might know him from afternoon delight that was a movie we got to talk about you might know him from uh the new tv series hunters on amazon prime which is outstanding i think second season is coming soon you might even know him from how i met your mother this is ted mosby but I, you know how i know Josh Radner, I know him from McBride Hall, the third floor McBride at Kenyon College, freshman year, 1992. Josh Radner, how are you? Jeff, wow. <clears throat> you are a master at those commercial advertisement things. I have to tell you something, and what? this is something that we can get into. Yeah. When I was a kid, my parents busted up, and I was alone. I was, I was considered a latchkey kid in New York City yeah. to the point where my parents, my dad lived somewhere else, and then my mother was kind of like trying to get another job and get her life together, so I was alone a lot. Yeah. So in, to, to keep myself from being homesick or lonely, I listened to the radio. Ah. So I, listened, I was like... I was raised by the radio because it made me feel like I wasn't alone. Wow. That's incredible. Did you see uh, Gary Goldman's special, uh, special, The Great Depression? No. He talked about, it's great, by the way, I was at the taping, but he talks about, you can tell how uh, divorced a kid, you know, his home was by how many free throws in a row he could sink. I can imagine. Oh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that, was, that the- was his. That was his thing. He sunk the free throws. But who, who were your people? Who were your like oh. best friends? Easy. I mean, it's well. I mean, growing up when I was younger, I wasn't. My father didn't really want me listening to popular music, so I did listen to Scott Shannon on, when he was on the Z Morning Zoo. Yeah, I was a huge Howard Stern fan to this day. Yeah, and I was. I listened to Opie and Anthony in the afternoons. I listened to a lot of NPR because I liked the voices. Yeah, I needed the voices because. I needed to be kept company and I felt like it would occupy my time. And then when, Oh, sorry. I remember I did an interview for liberal arts when I was on the press tour for that with a guy that you texted me about because you love him, Ron, somebody. Oh, you were on, you were on. Yeah. I I know exactly. You're talking about, you were on with Ron and Fez. Yeah. Uh, it was just him, but yes, Ron. Yeah. Ron is, uh, he's got a show now with his daughter. Uh, he's got a show on with his daughter on Sirius XM. Um, uh, Ron Bennington, Ron Bennington, Ron Bennington is one. He's, he's another awesome interviewer. He's an yeah. awesome interviewer. So what I, it, it got me to, you know, when podcasting first started, I started a podcast 10 years ago with my friend, uh, Nico, who's a set photographer. And yeah. then I just, I, I, this particular podcast has been interesting because most of the people listening are makers and they're by themselves and alone. So I feel this like connection to kind of keep uh, people company. Pe- people in their, their wood shop or wherever they are making yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. It's weird. It's weird. But well, it, it's like you got, you know, <clears throat> there's this book, Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon, where he, he, he talks about, like, we have our vertical family, which is our genetic, obviously, the family, nuclear family. And then you have what he calls horizontal family, where you, you look to your side, and you see who's kind of in your tribe, who's doing things the way you're doing, who's aligned with you, who sees the world in a similar way. So, um, yeah, it's cool. I mean, I, I always think of, you know, the difference between my horizontal family and my vertical family you know what i don't have either one of them i just i my my i was it's i have to talk to you about hunters has become one of my favorite tv shows oh nice i love, I love hunters I, yeah. I i when i when I, when we first started texting about this i started watching and i was like this 
is it brought back a lot of memories for me too. Hunters on uh, I, the first season's out on Amazon Prime. Yeah, or Amazon. we wrapped the second one about a month ago. It'll be out uh, in the summer, I think. It's it it. There was so much for that for that show that that really meant a lot to me, and a lot of it was because. Well, number one, I grew up in New York City in the 70s. Yeah. So there's a scene, the first, no spoilers, obviously. There's a scene in the beginning where they're in the, in the series where there's a blackout. I remember that blackout because yeah. we were on the 18th floor. And I remember when all the lights went out. Oh, shit. Yeah, wow. And it was, and it was this, when that, that, that whole story arc came around, it was just like, I was just like, it was jogging so many memories. It was, I was like three, but at the same yeah. time, it was totally... When I look at the work that you've done, especially when I look at all of your work, including this, the albums you put out, the, the, your latest uh, solo EP, One More, uh, and, and I'll Let You Go, just came out uh, last year. When I look at your work, I, tr- I find myself separating out the work that you've created because on your Instagram, you even say you're a maker. I, 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 I separate out the stuff that you've done as a maker, whether it be uh, Happy Thank You More Please, the wonderful movie, we've got to talk about that, and uh, Liberal Arts. And then I think about the music that you've made. I find that I'm finding this connection. I separate that stuff out from the roles that you've taken. And one of the themes that I've noticed that I really, really want to ask you about is it seems to me that place is such a huge part of your direction. It's almost like the main character of either your films or some of your songs. Place is such a huge part of your process. Do you think so? You know, no one's ever brought that up to me, but I'm totally willing to kind of explore that. I mean, you know, Ben and I have a song called Ohio. Ben Lee, I have a, with Ben Lee, I put out two albums uh, as Radner and Lee. We have a song called Ohio. We have a song called Green Street, which was, I was, uh, when I was shooting this show Rise, I was subletting on Green Street and Soho. So we wrote a song kind of around that. Um, I mean, I think as an, as a writer of things or a creator of stories, places like, you, you know, I'm just reading all these Joan Didion tributes and she was like, you know, fanatical about place, kind of grounding, especially California. She was a real kind of um, acidic poet of of California. Um, I think you're always kind of trying to ground yourself in place and say, uh, where am I right now? But where am I physically? Where am I emotionally, spiritually, psychologically? Um, I'm curious. I mean, liberal arts is like a deep kind of place, of you know, thing. Um Happy Thank You is is really a New York movie in so many ways. Um, I'm curious, like, what other uh, place uh, runners you, you located? Well, when I watched or rewatched Happy Thank You More, please. Yeah. As a girl, as a kid growing up in New York and when my parents were divorced, I spent a lot of time in my sister's place down on West 12th Street. Yeah. You captured some you, you know, of all the movies I've seen of New York. You captured the light of early morning West Village in Soho perfectly. I mean, yeah. you captured these moments, these moments that I remember as a kid walking down the street and seeing parts of the Soho, yeah. seeing parts of. And it's to the point where I was just like, I couldn't get over the fact that it was like, this is, of course, a New York movie. And New York plays such an incredible part in, in, in the play, in the, in the movie. And obviously, the liberal arts is the same way. I was, in, I was listening to your album, and, I, and when I was listening to Green Street on um, the 
the Radner and Lee's uh, album, Golden State. I started to wonder if it was an ode to when you were at NYU. <laughs> after it, college, after yeah. college, we, you know, you graduated from from Kenyon College uh, with a, you know, a bachelor's degree. You got the the um, what was the award you got? Paul Newman Award. You got <laughs> the, the Paul, Paul Newman, Newman Acting award. Trophy. And Thank I tell you for you, mentioning that, Jeff. I, Not enough people talk about me winning li- that. <laughs> listen, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, I'm going to be doing a lot better than most in the interview. I think I have a better understanding of you. Sure, than most of, of course these you flea do. Bags, because Hillary and I were talking about that, we went to see you when uh, your senior senior thesis when you were when you were due to Hamlet. No, we no, were no. there. I we did rem- sight unseen. We remember. Wait a second. You did you did Hamlet? No, no, no. Too. I did Romeo and Juliet. My my senior year, but that was like a full production in the Bolton. My my thesis was with Elliot, our mutual friend, right. uh, in the Hill Theater, sight unseen. Well, we we saw in Romeo and Juliet. Hillary yeah. said it was Hamlet. I'm, I'm now it was I not Hamlet. Was, you can hear. God damn it, Hamlet! Hillary, you fucked me up on that one. So, but but what I what I what I I remember when you moved to New York, you started to go to school. Uh, you went to get your graduate degree, your master's at uh, NYU. Yeah, I almost feel like there's so much New York to you. And like that, like Green Street, I was just like, oh, yeah, because when he talks about the cobblestones, I mean, that is, you know, West Village Green Street has cobblestones, you know. So I just started to wonder about liberal arts and happy. Thank you more, please. And your songs. And I just wondered as a creator, because I, I mean, what I do is and what a lot of my friends do is we make physical objects. Yeah. So place doesn't really have like, you know, there's not really a, you know, a sentimental muse with place but i noticed that with your work place has such a huge it has a it has a role yeah well i really appreciate what you said about happy thank you because i i i knew i knew how important new york was and i also knew like my new york is very below 14th street 14th street experience like like nyu uh east and west village like that is if i'm on the if i'm in like in midtown or the upper west side or east side like i it doesn't feel like home oh, yeah. to me, whereas when I'm in when I'm below 14th Street, for some reason, that's just where I feel the pulse of the city the most. Um, just because it's like, sorry, I'm going to do not disturb this. Hold on. Um, oh, look at you. I'm getting, <laughs> getting uh, nice. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, one thing I told my cinematographer, Seamus Tierney, who shot both my movies, I said, I don't want that kind of. N- you know, and I like Nora Ephron. It's not a slam on her, but that kind of like Upper West Side studio gloss, where New York looks looks like really brightly lit and kind yeah. of, I, not that we had the money to make it look that way, but but fortunately didn't in a way because I wanted. I told him I want to feel the gum in the sidewalks. That was yeah. kind of my direction. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't. I wanted all the kind of clash of colors and the the feeling of kind of like beautiful tension that exists down there. Um, and I feel like we really got it, you know, like it, I, I wanted it to feel grainy, you know, uh, and I love the way it looks. I think he did a great job. The lighting and the moments you catch in New York, especially, you know, dealing with restaurants not open yet and like kind of like getting deliveries and you really captured that early morning vibe. Oh, that yeah, was, that nice. was one thing I really noticed. And you know, a lot York. of movies don't do that. Like a lot yeah. of movies are like nighttime or, you know, like they don't show that before the city woke up kind of feel. It, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the best. I mean, that's the best part. To, that's the best time. And it's either you're you're out way too late or you're up way too early. Yeah. But that's like that's <laughs> yeah. how. I mean, that's the New York I've always loved. So actually, when I, when I used to wake, I used to when I was my parents were divorced. I would sometimes I'd stay with my sister who lived on. So I'd have to leave extra early to get to school. Yeah. So I would go through West 12th Street and go through the West Village, getting ready to go to the where subway. Where did you live? Uh, where was your mom's? 62nd and 3rd. Okay. Midtown. And where'd you go to school? I went to the Allen Stevenson School on 79th Street, and then I went to the Browning School on 62nd and Park. Okay. So I remember, I mean, I remember at Kenyon, you were not necessarily, it wasn't like all the New York City kids were like an army, but a lot of you knew, did you know other classmates before you came? I only knew Callie Zaglio. Okay. I knew Callie, Callie Zaglio went to Brearley. Brearley or Sacred Heart? No, no, no. She went to uh, Nightingale Bamford. I knew her, but that was about it. Yeah. I kind of, you know, for me, I wanted to get away from the city. I needed yeah. to get away yeah. from my family, really, is what I needed to do. I mean, at the time, I mean, my, my dad and his wife wanted really, they wanted me out. And my mom was like just trying to get a get her life together and I just needed out. Right, right. So, I mean, Kenyon was like, as I would imagine for you, well, you, know, you show up on the campus and, you know, you immediately fall in love. Yeah, of course. But I was also from Columbus. So I had, if, if I had any hesitation about Kenyon, it was geographic because yeah. I, I thought you were supposed to go east to school and I had the grades to do that and I got into a bunch of those schools, but there was some thing about Kenyon that I had this very strong instinct that if I went there, I would be an actor. Right. Like, and my dad didn't want me to go to, um, like a conservatory. He wouldn't have let me go to like a Juilliard or Carnegie Mellon or something. So, and he did, he went to Kenyon. So it was kind of like this perfect way to mollify my dad, get the education and kind of be pre-professional as an actor. Um, but I do remember that when I got there, I met all these New York city, kids that that were like you know like a different species to me hmm. you know just just at how much more of of kind of like urban life you guys had experienced than i had and also like the the prep school kids you know the loomis chafee um right. you know um well what were the um where did amy gallivan go it started with a w what uh westminster I don't know. Someplace don't, like that. Sorry, I don't, I don't or, know. you know, Deerfield, like yeah, all yeah, these yeah. schools that I had no idea because I was not an East Coast kid. Like I was properly Midwestern in turn and, and isolated in it. Um, so it really opened up a whole new world of <laughs> kind of privilege to me of like, uh, wow, yeah. these are this is a different life. You know, I couldn't even imagine my parents have sent me off, sent me off to boarding school as a freshman in high school. Well, frankly, I was just happy to be away, you know, be in a co-ed environment. I, I actually, thinking about you as being an actor, I wanted to go into acting Kenyon. But the thing is, is my, my, I wasn't, I didn't have a, my interests weren't, my, my reasoning wasn't pure. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I went to an all boys school for 12 years. And the only way we got to see girls was to do the acting with the girls. <laughs> right. So Look, many a great acting career has started with the same impulse. Well, I was I, I there was so there was such the schools were so small. I was pretty hot shit for like for nothing. I mean, for like nothing, you know, yeah. and I hated hated memorizing lines. I hated going to I hated the the the. the the constant repeating. I hated all of it, but I liked the opportunity to be around girls and find myself in a more confident setting. Now I remember going to Kenyon and it's interesting that you said that your dad didn't want you to go to conservatory because I wanted to go to RISD and uh-huh. my dad didn't want me to go to art school. He wanted me to get a, a well-rounded education. Yeah, which same, I think same, is the same exact thing. thing with my dad. Yeah. 
I think that we were probably in the same first year drama class. And when I showed up, I was so arrogant that I thought, this is, I'm going to fucking wipe the floor at this place. I'm going to be, because at the, at the, right before I went to college, I actually was almost in a movie. I was almost in, get ready for this. I was almost in Blue Lagoon 2. Oh, yeah, I, think I have a dim memory of you telling me this. I, yeah. my, my sister knew the casting agent for the return to the Blue Lagoon, and they got me in there. And I ended up I ended up doing two auditions. One of them was in this little cramped apartment, and I should have known better. It was just like there was some, you know, it just I had to take my shirt off and they're going to dye my hair and all this stuff. And, and it would have been me and Mila Jovovich, which, which is all I wanted. I mean, it's all I wanted in my life. It didn't you know, obviously didn't happen. Yeah. But I just remember. As soon as I went to the first class with Harleen Marley, who, you know, so sorry that she's gone, one of yeah. your mentors, one of your teachers. The first week, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to wipe the floor at this place. And then after the first week, I'm like, this is way harder than I thought it was. I don't know <laughs> what I was thinking. Yeah. I cannot do this at all. Yeah. Well, also, Kenyan drama... Like I sometimes I was for a while I was like an English drama double major and I quickly was like I didn't want to do two comp you know exams like you have to do these senior year you have to do these right. compulsory exams and English and drama were both a lot <clears throat> and I ended up being a drama major exclusively but I always feel like I I, I get defensive about it because it was really like a hard major it was academic yeah. you know it was not. I, I got a lot of my acting, you know, uh, stuff out of the way. I went um, for my junior year sing, spring semester. I went to the National Theater Institute in Connecticut and I got um, that's where I did a lot of my proper kind of acting. And my Kenyan experience was like 17th and 18th century drama and history of theater with Tom Turgeon. And um, it felt like and playwriting with Wendy, like it felt very like classroom oriented more than a kind of studio conservatory experience. And that served me well because when I got into when I got went to NYU for three years, it was just straight, you know, like, you know, massaging your jaw and voice and speech and and um, Alexander technique, like really, you know, um, the craft of it all rather than the kind of heady uh, exploration of it. Um, So I feel like I got this incredibly between the, you know, the seven years of training that I really did and the summers that I was going to, you know, doing non-equity theater and, and interning and apprenticing. Like I really got this deep, well-rounded, uh, uh, theater education, but also like just this bigger education, which I think is why I, I got to a certain age and I might be, I might be leaping ahead. We can stay in Kenyan as long as you want. But like, I got to a certain place where I was like, I, I, I need to do more than acting. I have this part of me that is a writer. And I think in some ways, anyone who graduates from Kenyan, has this kind of writer in them. I mean, it's why you're drawn to the place uh, to begin with, but also you end up writing so much there and you end up your, your, your communication and your, your verbal skills just kind of go through the roof when you're there. So I, I just got really jazzed about telling stories from a lot of different angles, not just as an actor. I was too angry and arrogant to take advantage of that. Really? Yeah, totally. I was, I, I was really, I had something to prove. I was very spiteful and I didn't take all I didn't take advantage of 
the the classes that I should have. I actually we had a we had a, the art guys, all the sculpture people. We had this move where we would convince the teachers to instead of letting us do papers, we would do sculptures for the class. <laughs> and then it was just like fish in a barrel, you know. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. And then did you end up being a studio? You were a studio art major. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Studio art. I was the art shop assistant. I put fires out in the art shop. Okay. I was like that. Was I was there? I was only there. Yeah, and it yeah, was yeah. like it became like it became great because you know we had a great time but i was totally taking advantage of you know what we refer to as welding voodoo where people don't understand how easy it is to do it and i would knock out these sculptures and then the class and the teachers would say wow he's really kind of going out of his way to do something different and i was just like you know knocking something out the night before it was just like i i was i was way too arrogant back then what would you do different if you could do canyon all over again I would take some writing classes. Okay. I've now, I really enjoy writing. I, I've done a little bit of art writing. I've done a little bit of curating. Um, I enjoy uh, writing. I, you don't want to tell you what I would, I wish I had done is I wish I'd gotten in the KC, uh, the WKCO when with the radio station there. Oh, sure. Yeah. When, I, when the, when I remember getting invited by uh, Andy Kotowitz, who passed away a number of years ago, he was uh, one of the guys at the KCU, uh, WKCO and Jamie Montgomery and I went down and hang, hung out with him on one of his shows. Dave LeCompte, and uh, Jonathan Mannion also were doing some radio shows, and I was coming in, but the, the, there was this rule that you couldn't really talk. I remember our friend Brody Burroughs was, was, did a show too, and I really wanted to do the radio, but I just I had no I had no musical taste, like I had no understanding of music. I just wanted to do like this, but there was no ability to do that. So I wish I could have done that. I would have I would have loved to have. Um, been involved with the radio station, especially at nights. I used to love calling the radio station at nights and making requests, and then I'd hear, oh, Jeff's up at the art barn, and he wants to hear some Clash. And I, I, right. I always loved that. Right, But right, I would right. definitely love to take in, some, take in some writing classes. You know why I think, though, that you are a good writer is because you've always been a good talker. Well, you know, my dad... No, and I don't mean that. And no, I don't mean that pejoratively. Like, I think, I think that people who are articulate and, and just can kind of formulate what they mean to say and say it well i think that's all writing is you know it's just getting it down on the page yeah but the thing is is you can't really you don't want to read the way people talk you don't want to read the way people speak it's just i do i mean i there's so many different styles but yeah i you know i we i i there was a couple there's some things that i'm supposed to be writing and i'm not and i i I, I, at some point i got to get back into that but (laughs) i appreciate my father was the the king of the bullshit artists so he i learned how to be the bullshit artist from him he was like the king of it i you know what it makes me wonder it makes me wonder you know one of this podcast specifically i speak to you know artists and craftsmen and 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 blacksmiths and stuff and, and what i love to talk about is the moment of like this, like an, almost like a fork in the road. When I think about your history, and I remember seeing you when you were at NYU, I remember you got the, uh, you were the, uh, you became the understudy in the graduate. No, no, the no. Broad, can no. I, can I correct this? Please. Uh, people say that I understudied the graduate. That's not true. Uh, I got my equity card understudying at Manhattan Theater Club and took over a role. So that was the only time I ever understudied. Uh, Jason Biggs was leaving the graduate for three months and they recast it, the role for three months. So I oh. stepped in, I rehearsed for two weeks and took over the role. I was never understudying him. Oh, I'm sorry. I, no, no, I, no, no I worries. I, someone wrote that on, 
on Twitter, and I almost corrected them, but I was like, eh, you know, but I, I was not his understudy. I, I took over the role for a couple months. What do, do you think that that was a moment that kind of changed you know, the open up opportunities. What was that like? I mean, you studied you studied acting for all these years. You have yeah. all this, and then all of a sudden, you're on a Broadway production with Kathleen Turner. What was that like? Well, you know, I, people always talk about like big breaks, right? It's a very common kind of showbiz thing. Like, oh, that was your big break. I feel like every every job is a big break because it's hard to get jobs. I also feel like you don't need one big break to sustain a career. You need like ten. Hmm. So, um, you know, getting my agent right out of school and, and understanding him to have theater club and getting my equity card, that felt like a big break. Um, getting cast in a new Eric Bogosian play at Baltimore Center Stage a couple months after that was a big break. Um, getting my first Law and Order, you know, guest spot felt like a big break. Um, I got cast in a pilot um, for the WB, like my first audition in Los Angeles. We shot it. I got fired. That was a weird big break, you know, because the show didn't turn out to be any good. <laughs> and I was kind of. Why did they I, fire you? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, to this day, I don't really know. Uh, the creators fought for me and didn't want me fired. It was someone at the network wanted me gone. So um, so by the time I got the graduate, then I did um, this civil uh, civil war. I, I did that later. I did a Supreme Court show with Sally Field called The Court that they shot we shot six and they aired three and yanked it two weeks after that i got cast in the graduate that turned out to be a great year i did six episodes of television three months on broadway and i got another little uh thing that financially that was the year i kind of really i i i did well you know and um Getting to be on Broadway with my 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 picture out front with Kathleen Turner and Elisa Silverstone, like right in between them. Uh, everyone in my life came and saw that. It definitely felt like I had some wind at my sails, like some new yeah. wind at my sails. I think I was 27 when I did that. I'd gotten out of school at 24, about to turn 25. So it was a, it was a big thing. And it gave me a kind of um, it made me feel like I can be at the center of things. You know, like I can be the lead of a show. I can hold the center. I was I was getting good at uh, like being a leading man, you know, Hmm. Um, which was not something I particularly thought of myself as Um, it was actually ended up being kind of perfect training for uh, for how I met your mother, Um, even though that was its own kind of can of worms. And, and, you know, that brought a lot of struggles with it, too. I mean, I I, I think like I, I do a lot of speaking to colleges. And one of the things I always talk about is like. Everyone fears failure, but success has its own deep, deep, deep challenges hmm. that people don't really talk about. So um, every everything that I broke through to and got to the next level or, or took on something else always came with these new negotiations that I would have to do. These new this uh, a whole uh, like host of unforeseen problems that I didn't uh, anticipate. Uh, it uncorked a, a lot of insecurities and and and. Um, you know, sense of fraudulence in me too. Like they're going to find out that I'm just this Jewish kid from Ohio who doesn't belong here, yeah. you know, stuff like that. I heard your, I listen. I watched you had a, um, an ink talk 
in yeah, Mumbai, in India that I gave. It yeah. was amazing. It was Thanks. a 16 minute. I'm going to link it into the into the show notes. Of this It was really amazing because you were very, very candid. You were obviously very well spoken. You were very candid in regards to what that was like in terms of dealing with depression and dealing with fame and what's fame and stuff like that. I guess in my mind, when I think of the graduate, I think of, you know, I think of you as an actor and as a, as a, as a, as a student of acting. And I think in my mind that, a, you know, a real student, you're not some kid they found in a mall, you right, know, it's right, like, right. you're not, you weren't found you, you work to this point and then getting uh, on a, on a billboard in, 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 on Broadway is like the ultimate, is the ultimate is the ultimate of what you're you were looking for? So I guess to me, I always just made the mindset that just like, well, that's the goal. I mean, well, yeah, it's all, that is also true. You know what I mean? Like, like I would walk to the theater every day or walk from the subway, and I would just be like, I can't believe I'm going to star on Broadway tonight. Like yeah. this is a real kick, you know. And and I think because like I have a I have a very strong memory. Like I remember what it felt like in high school to do those first couple plays I did. I remember what it felt like the first curtain call, standing ovation, the first um person I really respected saying, "You can do this. You should do this." Um so so because I have this strong and long memory around that stuff, it's it's allowed me to feel gratitude as I go. Because I remember where I came from. I remember doing plays at Kenyon and wanting to do this professionally with my whole being, like my whole heart. I wanted it. And and so even though, you know, cynicism tempts and kind of being over it or being lazy or taking things for granted, all that stuff can happen. Ultimately, what is a stronger emotion in me is I can't believe I'm doing this professionally and this is how I've made my living and I've never had to do another job besides this. Like, it, it astonishes me, actually. It's so great. I mean, I, 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 I wonder what, what your feelings the first day. I don't know. I'm sorry. I keep going on The Graduate. Maybe we should talk about Eric Bogosian, who number number two, one of the great <laughs> movies of all time. What is it? Talk Radio? Talk Radio. I'm sure that would be one of your oh, favorites. Talk yeah. Radio. What a fucking movie that was. Yeah. But. But I wanted and I mean, I guess I, if you could, can you take me back to that feeling of for the first night stepping on, stepping on the stage with, with Kathleen Turner and Elisa Silverstone? Yeah. Um, so there was this casting, she's now a big casting director, but she was the casting assistant. Her name is Sarah Isaacson. She's still a friend of mine. She basically got me the job on the court. She, she found, they were having trouble casting this part. She found my tape. She got me a test deal. I got that role and then she put me on tape for the graduate in LA. They loved my tape. So I had to go to New York. I was actually going back to New York. My girlfriend at the time we were living together and she was back in New York. I went back to New York. I read, uh, I read for the people. The director was British. He wasn't even there. I don't think I ever met the director. It, uh, they, I, I can't remember if they videotaped me or what. And I can't remember if I auditioned with Kathleen in the room or not. It might have been. I think no, that's what it was. I was brought back to read with Kathleen, and I think to read with Alicia. And I can't remember if it was one or two auditions. I think it was only one more. They both approved me, and the director kind of took their word for it. The stage manager, a great guy named Peter Lawrence, put me into the show. I had two weeks to rehearse, so I rehearsed with the understudies for two weeks every day for two weeks. How do you? How is that? How? What's the pressure on two weeks to be prepared for that? I mean, look, some some people get less like some people have stepped in with less. Two weeks is 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 pretty 
good if you're if it's all you're doing. I mean, I I lived with the script. I lived with the the blocking. We rehearsed, you know, long days. The, the understudies were awesome. They were so helpful. So then I get one rehearsal with Kathleen, one rehearsal with Alicia, just rehearsing all our scenes. And then I have what's called a put-in rehearsal. No, I think I did one kind of run-through with the cast. And then we do what's called a put-in rehearsal where we do the full show. with. I had like, I don't know, a, so many costume changes. My dresser was this amazing guy who became a really good friend. And he's having to you know throw clothes on me and take them off me. And I had to do – I got this one put-in rehearsal. And then I think the next night I got I got put on. And uh, I do remember this very strongly. I started the show in the bedroom – and and the way the play starts, he's in a, like the full scuba gear, like full right. wetsuit, right. full uh, you know uh, snorkel, everything. And and I remember it was behind this scrim, this like wooden scrim that would that would come up and reveal the audience. And I remember putting the goggles on, and I could hear my breath, you know, just like <sighs> like really. Yeah, and yeah. I just remember feeling the the feeling. I've never jumped out of an airplane, but this is the closest I, I imagine oh. it feels like to being pushed out of an airplane because I had two hours and 15 minutes ahead of myself being in, I think I'm in every scene, but one in the whole, in the whole thing. And I just remember being like, what the, like, what have I gotten myself into? Am I going to remember these lines? Am I going, you know, and, and that performance was fine, but it was more like you're in survival mode, just like trying to hang on for dear life. Cause it just feels like this, conveyor belt you know you're just being moved along and i mean actually i was part of the conveyor belt because i had to pace that show so much but i do remember like it came up and i could feel you know a thousand people's eyeballs on me and the lights and i could feel the presence of all the people looking at me sounds awful but in some ways that's what i had been training for like like it was like navy seal training right like i've been through not to compare but you know what i mean it was like you train for combat so to speak you train for the moments when you're gonna be unnerved and you have to find your center but it's almost an un it's almost it's almost a position where it's almost unwinnable because the the pressure it's not you've only had two weeks and then i mean you haven't been in a lot of other plays at that level with kathleen turner who is you know you and i are old enough to remember her from romancing the stone so and alicia silverstone it's just like it the whole thing is must have been like paralyzing i I mean paralyzing is the right word well yes and no i mean i I came armed with a degree from like what what at that point I think was the best drama school in the country. I had logged so many hours on stage. Um, I had just come off some like real professional success. I just worked with Sally Field and Pat Hingle and Diane Carroll and Christina Hendricks and all these people on this show. So I was feeling like, you know, it's almost like put me in coach, right? Yeah. Like it, it's like oh, you, you, you were, have that. You were ready. Yeah. I mean – I, I knew I was ready um, from the basics of could I do this play from the, the start of the play to the end of the play? Could I act it? Could I hit the beats? Could I get the laughs? Could I emotionally ground it? I knew I could do all those things. It was actually in a weird way. It's not it wasn't that hard a role for me. It wasn't that big of a stretch. What was harder is what you're describing, which is the psychological leap into, oh, my God, I'm up here with these movie stars and I'm on Broadway and my name is on the marquee. And I'm just, again, like this guy from Ohio, like, how did I get here? But I think that's where the psychological aspect of um, 
the business is really a lot of people don't talk about that. And that's kind of what I was talking about in the talk I gave in India is like, how do you stay sane? How do you stay grounded? How do you stay humble while at the same time saying I have a right to be here? I can do this. It's like it's this really weird um, trick. You have to, to 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 stay humble and be ambitious and step into the next thing is a real uh, tricky thing that you can do it, but you also it requires some work, if that makes sense. You make it makes a lot of sense. I, I wonder because I wonder the difference between, you know, I mean, well, I mean, I, I try to I'm just trying to think about, you know, the connection that you and I have in terms of because, you know, being artists, and stuff like that, the difference between making something. And then it's a physical thing. And then you just kind of walk away from it to the idea of performative art, which is more, you know, your whole being, your whole being is a part of that. And, you know, you think about TV shows, you think about movies and you think about, you know, acting on Broadway. It is you have to be I would imagine what the fuck do I know? I would imagine you completely have to be within the confines of the now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's where it becomes like a spiritual thing. You know, the the best actors are the ones who are just ruthlessly present, who are not thinking about what they're going to have for dinner afterwards and are, you know, not replaying a fight they had with their spouse. You know, they're they're just really in it. And um, I think, you know, film and TV is a little more like what you're describing, because one of the things I actually like about working in film and TV is I do it. And then I walk away from it. Right. They put it together. And then there's this, this object, this thing that exists that I don't have to get like. You can see Afternoon Delight and it's going to be the same as the first time you saw it. Like it is preserved. If you come see me in a play three different times, that's a different performance. It's a different some nights the audience is going to be really with it. Some nights we're going to be uh, on top of it. Some nights we're going to be a little bit off. Um, my, um, my friend Tommy Kale, who who directed Hamilton, I asked him about how do you talk to the cast after they've gotten those kind of reviews, right? Like how do you keep them, you know, motivated? And he said, I told them this is not like getting a good film review. This is like getting a good restaurant review, meaning all these people are now going to come to our restaurant and we have to keep the quality way high to earn, you know, to, 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 to have them feel like this, they're eating at the place described in that review. And you're only as good as your last meal. A hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, I was actually watching the Knicks, uh, on Christmas Day and they were unbelievable. They've been sucking this year and we got to go to see a couple games and we were watching them and it was a great game. It was great for Christmas. It was great for New York. Um, Incredible dunks, just awesome everything. But you just think yourself that idea of like, well, now what's going to happen? They won one, they've, you know, but now what? And And it makes me wonder about the idea of you in terms of performance, but also in terms of distance in your life. You know, when you were saying Afternoon Delight, it's, you know, Afternoon Delight or the movies you made, liberal arts, it's preserved. Yeah. How do you look at you, the the body of your work as as of now? Do you see it positive, negative? Do you just like, I mean, how do you age with it? Because I'll tell you what, I'll give you an example. I'm, I, I make knives and I, I, knives I've made five years ago, I want to like get them back. You know, like back right. because I don't like them. Right. You know, or back because they didn't do it for me or I've changed or my direction is different. I see old sculpture of mine 
less than 10 years ago and I want to like burn it to the ground. Right. You know, right, I'm like right. not interested at all. Yeah. So it makes me wonder when you think about your work in terms of performative and you have the, you have these movies that are preserved forever or, you know, performances that you've had, how do you look back on those? That's a great question. And I, I, um, if you remember in, uh, happy, thank you. There's a scene with me and Pablo Schreiber in the bar towards the end where, where my character Sam talks about how a writer told him that every five years you realize what an asshole you were five years ago. Yeah. And then you just, every five years you keep looking back and realizing, Oh my God, I was such an idiot. And in some ways that was kind of a, like a little Easter egg I put into myself and I didn't even realize it till later, but essentially it was saying, this is your first movie. You're saying some stuff in here. You believe right now. And you might be embarrassed about this in five years or 10 years, but you're doing the best you can right now. And um, I think that's just the way it is for me. It's like uh, sometimes I look back on my work and I really blush with with a kind of embarrassment. And I say, um, God, I'm so much better now. Yeah. Uh, And other times I look back and I say that was that was pretty good. I mean, what's interesting is like. I love writing and directing movies. I uh, I have some movies queued up that I'm not going to be in, and I'm really looking forward to that because while I really love uh, Happy Thank You and Liberal Arts, my performances in those movies are probably my least favorite part of those movies. Hmm. Um, just because I was spread a little thin, I, 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 I was doing too much, you know, um, directing myself as well as the whole scene. And it's, it's, it was just kind of a crazy thing that I asked myself to do, which I'm happy I did. And maybe I would do it again. Maybe I wouldn't. But um, I think you have to... Uh, Again, this is this is where you, you you can be tough on yourself, but not in a way that is debilitating because you almost have to laugh at that every five years thing. Like say, look, if I'm growing, I'm going to look back on parts of my life and not just, you know, artistically, but like I look at how I behaved five years ago in a relationship and I'm mortified. You know, yeah. I would never do that again. So if you're if you're committed to growing, which as a human being, like I hope you are, <laughs> I hope we are. Not everyone is, but I am. Um, that's going to come with like a blush of humiliation at yeah. your former selves. You know. But how do you look at the? I mean, I mean, I mean, how I met your mother is just. I mean, it was. I think about it in in the sense of like. You know, besides the chemistry you all had and the success you had, it is really kind of like a once in a, a once it's a once in a lifetime show, in terms of how far it went and it, yeah. and, 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 and 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 how it propelled you, propelled. I mean, it propelled the fucking network. It propelled everybody on that goddamn show. And I wonder how it makes you think when you think about it now. Because I know everyone asks, everyone says. I mean, I, I was listening to your podcast with Bob Sag, and he says, you know, I know him as you know, Tom uh, Ted Mosby. How do you look at how do you look back in your in your life and you and you are you are you annoyed when people are you annoyed that I even asked you about it? Because <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, mean, look, that that's such a that's such a uh, you can be. I can. It's, I find no, me, no, I find no. Me. I feel like it's weird if you don't ask me about it. Right. It's also weird. Um, like, you know. I <laughs> I know it's a tough one. Yeah. I was thinking about it for fucking months. So, so so here's the thing. Like for me to sneeze at how I met your mother or act like it's not an important part of my life and my my biography is absurd. Like but I also feel it's really hard to be over identified with something. Right. It's really hard 
for people to call you a name that's not your name. <sighs> it's really hard um, <sighs> to imagine. be, you know, the role, if you look at roles I've taken, I've chosen to work a little bit less and be very uh, careful about what roles I take. I'm not playing that role anymore. Like after doing 208 episodes as like a wide eyed, virtuous kind of center of a narrative, like I don't take those roles anymore and I get offered them. But it's like I've done I've done that. I will say this. For a long time, I was really I was so much prouder of other acting work I had done that was um, obviously didn't go for nine years and 208 episodes. But um, sometimes and, and I've also been like, man, uh, I, I, I'm I'm you know, I, that was such a hard role. And I think I did it as best I could. But I'm, I'm a little embarrassed about my work on there. But then as the years have gone on, the craziest thing has happened. Like I hear from so many people who. The show changed their life. The show kept them alive in their dark moments. The show was their only source of laughter when their mom was dying. The show, um, you know, uh, saved their marriage. Like all this shit you hear. And then people say to me, because I had a whole story going that I thought people hated my character while we were on the air. And now I'm finding that all these people actually love and identify with him, including women, which I always am tickled by. They're like, I am that character. And um, but I I get sent clips sometimes or I'll catch a clip or my girlfriend's son was watching all the episodes. And I would kind of I don't I, I haven't even seen all the episodes, but I sometimes glance in and be like, man, you were really hard on yourself. You were quite good on this show. And I mean that with like some caveats. Sometimes yeah. I think I blew it. But a lot of times like. There'll be these things where I'm like, oh, this was really charming and funny. And one day I think I'm going to sit down and watch all of this show and actually make some peace with it and feel that I was really at the center of something pretty special. Now, there are certain things about that show that I think have aged very poorly. Um, It's certainly a time capsule, you know, of its of its moment. And things are changing so quickly, like some of the stuff with with Neil's character and and some of the stuff uh, around women and it had some a bunch of transphobic jokes and homophobic jokes and all these things that you you really are like wince at now but its heart was very pure and and I know you know the guys that created it are obviously you know I'm very close with them and and, and um they they're incredibly sincere well-intentioned dudes very smart very funny so you know I'm grateful for that show and I also want to properly contextualize it in my life without uh, leaning too heavily on it and without, a, a, you know, weirdly ignoring it. Like, yeah. it sh- it, you know, it, it can and should be discussed, you know, if we're going to talk about my career. Of course. But yeah. I mean, at the same time, I can just only imagine the screaming and the hollering from across the street. Hey, Ted. Hey, Ted. Yeah, I don't turn. Can I take really. a picture? Well, yeah. you know, it's just so nice. Like, if you know me from that show, that's cool. But the acknowledgement that I'm an actor and I'm also that's not my name and I'm having lunch with a friend. Right. Like like I just like people to acknowledge that like it's my it's like I'm I'm living a life here and and I'm and I'm not in that. I'm not you know, that's not me and I'm not I'm here right now being myself. Um, If people acknowledge that that was a character I played, like I'm more than willing to talk to them about it. I just don't like it when they think that I'm a guy who did all those things when it's, I'm just an actor who is contractually obligated to say all that stuff. I think it's tough because I can only imagine that it's tough because it's like stumbling on a four leaf clover. I mean, when, when somebody 
does sees you and notices you. I mean, I grew up in New York, so I've seen I, the best the best bumping into famous people has been. I was on Park Avenue on the, one of the islands when we were crossing the street, my friends, and Rod Stewart was there on the island waiting for the trap. We were on the same island waiting That's for Rod one. Stewart and Rachel Hunter, yeah. and we were like, we're. I'm trying to we're all trying to cross the street we're all stuck on this island and we're like yeah, that's Rod Stewart definitely Rod Stewart like oh my god and as the the lights change we're like Rod way to go Rod because you know he's with Rachel Hunter it was, it was awesome but like <laughs> I always I always growing up I always said you know you, the cool thing in, as a New Yorker is you just don't you, you notice it and then you don't acknowledge and you leave them alone oh, that was yeah. always a so I, I can only just imagine what that's like. But yeah, at the same- you know, yeah. Some some days I'm reminded that people know recognize me, and some days it's kind oh. of like much quieter. And sometimes it goes in waves where you're like, "Wow, I am I'm being recognized all over the place." And other times it's super quiet. Like there are times where I think I'm not like stratospherically famous, and yet there are times when I'm like, I don't know if I could be any. I don't if I would want to be any more famous than yeah. this. You know what I mean? It's like. It opens a lot of doors and it also weirdly, you know, shuts some and also it can make you feel very um, like anonymity is a precious thing in a lot of Mm. ways, like just to sit somewhere and be left alone. What kind of doors is it shut? Um, I think it shut casting doors in terms of that's what I mean. It opens some and it closes some like the the roles I get offered are generally roles I don't necessarily want to do because they're based on what people think I've already done or think I can do. And the roles that I want, I really have to fight for because they're a totally different, you know, Hunters is a great example. Like I did end up auditioning for that because I, I they weren't going to make me a straight offer. They wanted me for the role, but I ended up having to read for it just once. And um, I'm so glad I did because like, to play like uh, you know drug addicted Jewish movie star in the seventies who also fights Nazis like yeah that's the role I want to play you know. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, (laughs) I could really use Current. (laughs) I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Lonnie Flash is such a fascinating character, yeah. Because right. in the se- in the whole series, you're the only one they write jokes for. Mm-hmm. There's nobody. There's not one other funny moment. Well, there are. From- there are, but they're much. They're like really dark and really. I think like Harriet the nun gets some hilarious stuff, you know. But, but like, you're not. You're meant to be. funny. I'm meant to be funny. I'm definitely the uh, the the mood lightener, and I. I know what my role is. It's funny, like, for so long, especially in How I Met Your Mother, I was like, the, the I, I, speaking of basketball, like, I always consider myself the point guard, right? right? I created a ton of plays. I led in assists, but I did not lead in points on the board. You know, I didn't get the, you right. know, fucking dunks and stuff like that. But I, I knew how integral I was to the success of it. I always called it twice the work and half the glory, you know? Yeah. And then you have these these constellation characters that orbit around the main character. 
who get all the funny and work less, right? Like they work yeah. less hours. Yeah, I can imagine. So they, they come in, they crush it, and then they go home. And that was much more in my experience on Hunters. I mean, the second season, I have some really meaty, great stuff, but um, I know I know what that role required because I I I've been around the the people who do that, and I was always jealous of those people. So on some level, I'm like, oh man, I wish I had more to do and at the same time I'm like nah this is a pretty sweet gig talking about hunters I I found you know if you watch the first the first uh, the first episode you assume that it's going to be like a Quentin Tarantino show yeah and I ended up finding myself so thinking about my family and identity identity yeah. as, as a Jewish person and yeah. it, it really kind of like sent me down some weird rabbit holes. One of the reasons why is because my father joined uh, after after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. My dad uh, joined the Air Force. But he, as a Jewish person, he was worried about the bullying or what the anti-Semitism. So he, on his dog tags, he made it uh, agnostic. So like uh-huh. so he really kind of I mean, he, he didn't go out of his way to say that he was Jewish. And I think that there was a lot of with him, especially he wasn't bar mitzvahed. He, his family, his father was from Austria and played in the New York Philharmonic as a cellist. And his mother was from Russia. They were Jewish, but they didn't, they weren't bar mitzvahed. And when I was, when I was born, like, you know, my dad married a few people, then married my mother who was Kathy St. John, St. John was, you know, obviously this is a, you know, as he referred to her as a shiksa, which is the Yiddish for non-Jewish person. When I was named, Jeffrey with a G, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y, Jeffrey William Fader. It was the most non-Jewish yeah. name you could find. Yeah. You know, my di- my mom originally wanted me to be Benjamin Jr., but he told her, look, in the Jewish religion, you don't name someone after someone's alive. So he, he came up with it. We're going to name him Jeffrey. And it almost felt like, it, and then he didn't want me to be bar mitzvah. It didn't. Didn't really care. He basically said, "If you're not bar mitzvah, if I'm going to get bar mitzvah, you don't get bar mitzvah." So I was raised in this very almost like strange life. So I'm really, I really was. It was interesting to me because I always wondered if maybe he was like, I don't know if he was embarrassed. He wasn't embarrassed later in life, but it was like I found like this real connection with it because talking about thinking about identity and where you came from as a Jewish person, and it was really kind of. It was a, it was heavy in that regards. Yeah, yeah. Well, David Weil, who created it, he uh, his grandmother, I think, was a Holocaust survivor. He's got a lot of Holocaust survivors in his family, I, I think. And uh, his, you know, he he was really bullish on the fact that he wanted to make Jews tough and cool yeah. again. Because there's a, you know, there's a real history, like the whole idea that Jews didn't fight back and and just went like lambs to slaughter and the Holocaust is false. That's not true. Um, there were so many, you know, ghetto uprisings and 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 little, you know, militia forces that were, were trying to, uh, you know, fight back. Um, but David, I think he's trying to rewrite this kind of um, pernicious narrative of, of, uh, the weak or unproud Jew, you yeah. know, and um, it was just really important to him. And I, I, I love, I loved doing what is essentially, if you break it down, is kind of a realistic Jewish Avengers. I mean, that's what uh, it's a superhero show. Yeah. You know, the the um, the whole premise of it, the whole vibe. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, if you look at the history of the comic book character Superman, he was – it was supposed to be the story of the Jewish uh, exodus. 
mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. He, he was he was you know from a foreign land and he was you know from a foreign country and he's sent to it by himself and it, the parents are I mean parents named Jorel and his name's Kal El I mean if you, that ain't from you know that ain't from the Talmud I don't know I mean I don't know what else to tell you I mean yeah, Jor- yeah. Kal-El. I mean a lot of the or weren't a lot of those comic book creators were Jews kind of right. fleeing the, the the Holocaust and um, yeah. I, I, I just all find it very interesting because, you know, the idea of passing and the idea of identity in terms of, like, the concept of, you know, the Superman character, I mean, they didn't spell it out. But, I mean, it was, like, the same thing with, you know, in the Fantastic Four. The thing is the thing is Jewish. And, and there's there's it's interesting that there was this whole level in terms of, of ident- Jewish identity in that show. It was mar- far more than just, you know, yeah. killing Nazis. And and also Lonnie Flash, you know, he he's Leonard Flagenstein. Right. right? Like, and so from from his Hollywood career, he's, he's kind of trying to be this, even the name Lonnie Flash is kind yeah. of a superhero name. So, so he's created this identity for himself that is much, you know, excuse this, but like flashier, and and it's a running theme in both seasons. This kind of notion of you're 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 really Leonard Flagenstein, and that's the role that you were born to play. You know, yeah. this kind of reclamation of your identity, and um, and you know, one of the things I love dearly about Hunters, and and a big source of comedy in it is. Um, He's this famous movie star. He's kind of like a Burt Reynolds meets Elliot yeah. Gould, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, fucking and, Elliot Gould. Yeah, and uh, the hunters, the the people he hunts these Nazis with, are like deeply unimpressed with his celebrity. In fact, they find yeah. it to be rather distasteful. You know, no one's impressed with him in the group, which I think is really hilarious. And I, I was able to. You know, it was fun for me, and I think this helped me. Like, I have some experience with fame. I have some experience with um, being thought really well of just for no reason other than I've been on television and in movies. And I have uh, experience of um, people being rude to me for no particular reason just because they don't want to seem like they're kissing my ass. Like, there's all these things that go on when you when you have this kind of visible profile that I was really able to tap into. Like, I, I didn't have to do a lot of research. Like, I did read um, uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Have you ever read that book? No. It's a phenomenal book. It's about the, the, the film scene in the 70s and about the kind of young Turk directors who, yeah. who are now, like, in the Pantheon. But up, at the time, they were these upstart, you know, Spielberg, Lucas, Scorsese, Brian De Palma. Um, so, um, Mike Nichols. So... Um, yeah, I mean, it was just a, it was a super fun world to throw myself into. And I didn't have to do a ton of research. I mean, I didn't have to research what being Jewish was. I didn't have to research, you know, that much about show business. I mostly just had to, like, um, you know, wear the, these amazing clothes and have this crazy facial hair. And, Outstanding. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, I, I would say they're, they're even more funky and interesting in the second season. So how would you say I mean, obviously, there's got to be a different reaction to. Uh, hunters than how I met your mother, because I mean when I when I went on to Hunters originally, I looked at the reviews and the first reviews, and well, I think it was a lot of Jewish people who are very sensitive, obviously, with, yeah. with rightly so, are very sensitive about how the Holoto- how the Holocaust is, is taken. Have you? How do you feel the reaction has been to the show? Well, it's kind of hard to gauge because we premiered in like mid February 2020, so. 
the, oh, yeah. the, the coronavirus, like the, the COVID wave was like about to crest and fall on New York and um, other places. So we went into lockdown and, you know, we did all the press tour. We had the opening, the opening night, you know, the premiere was like one of my last nights out in the world. You know, it was wow. like, um, so um, I didn't know how Hunters did. I, I assumed it did well because we got picked up for a second season, but it was apparently either Amazon's highest rated original show or sec- just just second to The Boys, which is right. a really big hit for them. So um, the show did incredibly well in terms of viewership. A lot of people tuned into it. Um, I think that to compare it to How I Met Your Mother is almost impossible because – and I, a lot of people don't I remember guess I, I guess I mean not comparing. I mean like I would imagine you have a different – you have a, you had a different reaction. You get a different well, reaction to the cat to the person that you're playing. Yeah, but I also – I don't think they're overlapping audiences in, in a lot of ways. Not I mean look, all. the Josh Radner yeah. completists are probably tuning in. But um, most of it is uh, – it's a, it's a totally different audience. And also How I Met Your Mother was really a slow burn. I remember – the first season, we always did well with the demo. Like, like CBS picked us up exclusively to appeal to a younger audience because they were the – demographically, they were the oldest. They had the oldest skewing audience and advertisers always want young people. I don't know. It's silly. But um, so we always did well in the demo. Um, and, and for a couple of years, we just chugged along on the, on the you know – on the energy of of being the youngest skewing show, but not even close to being the the biggest in terms of total viewers. And then in the, I think the fourth season we went on Netflix. We started streaming on Netflix, and I remember we uh, Jason Siegel came in one day. We were all sitting around waiting to start, and we were all kind of quiet. And he just said, "Are things getting weird out there for anyone else?" And we were all like, "Yes!" Like suddenly. We were being recognized everywhere and people were talking about the show. It just like and then our ratings started to go up because of the streaming, which is what happened to a lot of shows. Breaking Bad was the same way. Like once it went on streaming, people started tuning in. Um, so then by the time we ended our ninth season, we had the highest ratings. We, we just kept going up and up and up. Um, and it was just a very strange. It's not normally like that. I mean, we, we it was a really interesting kind of ride to be on in terms of like ratings and popularity. And I think Hunters is like. It's a totally different landscape in terms of TV, you know, streaming, limited episodes. You know, we did 10 episodes for a season. We only did eight the second season. Um, I think you're we're getting more into like almost like the British model, you know, four, six, yeah. eight, ten episodes. And that's it. Um, that's great. It's like doing a long movie. You know, it was funny. Pacino would. uh he always referred to it as the film or the movie, and we were like, we don't think he knows this is a TV show. Dude, they made him work. Oh, my God, yeah. They he made works. him He likes to work, work, though. He likes to work. He, 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 he likes acting more than, more than most people. I mean, he worked in that. I know. That. I I mean, know. I he loved like, it. He, 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 he asked to come break. back for the second season. So um, he, wow. he really did love it, yeah. He had a pretty good Jewish accent. He did, and he stayed in it the entire time. Oh, did he? So, so he'd be telling us stories like, like I asked him the first time we got him talking was one of the first days, and I actually got him talking because you know it took place in the seven, summer of '77, the first season. So I asked him where he was in the summer of '77, and he told us these unbelievable stories, but all with his Yiddish accent. He never fell out of the accent. So he's telling you stories about you know all these movies and stuff, but he's just it's hilarious. 
he did a pretty good job. I wonder who does the best Jew. I I personally think that Eddie Murphy does the best Jewish accent. <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't know if anybody does it better than him. But I was I felt like Al Pacino was. I'm, what is that like? I mean, you, you now you have this incredible. You're having like these moments with Al Pacino. Yeah, what's that like? Um, initially, that was the most unnerving vertigo inducing person I had ever worked with in terms of like their reputation preceding them. You know what I mean? Like, like he, there's like a couple Al Pacinos. There's like the, the legend, the like film legend, like Mount Rushmore acting kind of God who kind of like that guy comes into the room before he does. You know, right. who give me your give me the Mount Rush give me the Mount Rushmore. Living. I mean, uh, you know, I, you you could uh, if you're talking like 1970s male actor lions, you know, it's okay. like him and De Niro and Gene. I would put Gene Hackman up there. Maybe you know, maybe Richard Dreyfus. Um, uh, I don't know who else. Elliot Gould might be in there. Well, like, yeah, I guess I'm. But, thinking but there's some guys that just kept going. Um, uh, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, he's like. I think he was nominated for four Oscars in a row uh, in the seventies. Um, yeah, it's hard to do. I'm, I'm not a fan of like lists, but That's fine. Um, I understand. Yeah, but uh, but you know, his reputation is so mighty and so um, just just iconic. Um, and then there's like the actor who comes in who like really wants to get to the bottom of a scene and won't do anything until he really figured it out. I'll tell you the best thing about working with Pacino, and I got on with him great. I mean, I really have deep affection for him. Um, the best thing about working with him, um, and I don't even think he'd mind me saying this. Go ahead. Is it's really, really heartening to watch him be not good. Like to watch him do a take that he kind of misses or he's lost and he doesn't know what he's doing. And the reason is it's almost like, you know, if you had an an artist, uh, you know, who you love so much and you saw their kind of first draft at something before they melted it down and redid it, you'd be like, oh, I I mess up my first drafts, too. Like like it made me feel like we're all doing the same stuff. I mean, and then he would stay at it like – he would ask for another take or he'd keep wanting to do it. And he always did it. And he always did something. He found something brilliant all the time. But it was a reminder that this, that we're fallible, that that even Al Pacino has to work to figure it out, that that his first it's not like everything he touches turns to gold. Eventually it does because he stays at it and he's fearless and he gives himself a lot of um, opportunity to fail. He that's the thing. He has a great relationship to failure. He 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 is okay not getting it and going back. He always gets like back on the horse again. Like he's just he's he's fascinating. This brings me to something I'm sure you've seen. Have you seen the uh, the Beatles documentary on? Uh, yeah, I have a little bit more to go, but I've seen it. Yeah, I I this this show is so important for creative people because it's a very very un- it's the most unique look into the creative process agreed coming from a place of knowing the songs yeah. and watching the struggle happen yeah and it's it's a un- it's the most i mean i i was talking to a friend of mine i was like look once they tell me 5 years down the line peter jackson says i made the whole fucking thing up it's all cgi none of it was real because it's almost 
unheard of that you could watch the creative process from back then now knowing where they're going to go you know where the song is going to come you know how the song is going to end up but you, you're you're watching that struggle yeah and i would and for me i i my friend craig made me watch it and i watched it we watched i mean my kid watched my kids that being in the, the base right now and i said this is how you struggle this is this is how you create greatness is this concept of struggle so i can i would imagine that there's a lot of similarities on a, on a set where you're around all these people and then they're, you have, you're on the clock and you got the yeah, right you, guy. And- you, you, we get to hear Pacino's Let It Be and Long and Winding Road, but I got to watch him fiddle around on the piano and, and knock out the melody and, and, and kind of yeah. not get it at first. I, you know, I felt the same way about the, the Beatles doc. Like, you know, Ben had a response where he, it, it made him depressed because he thought he was like watching greatness that you know we as the 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 non Beatles population are not going to achieve. I had the exact opposite response. I found it to be completely inspiring, and I realized and I and I and I say this like very gently and not the way it might sound, but it made me feel like as a songwriter, oh, I'm I do the same thing as the Beatles. I mean, that doesn't mean our end product is the same, but like the struggle, yeah. the 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 holding lyrics, the 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 nonsense lyrics until you figure it out, the um, sitting with somebody—is this too corny? Is this too cliched? Like they were asking all the questions that songwriters ask, and I just thought, wow, isn't this amazing that they are like you know, it's like stars—they're just like us, yeah. you know? Like, like I felt like it—it it was it, it, the other thing about that that I thought was so fascinating was the first time I saw them. Whenever I would see the Beatles before, especially in that period, they look like they were from nowhere and everywhere all at once. They look like they descended from some like yeah. Mount Olympus of artists, you know, rock stars. And then you really see them as like guys in their 20s who were in this wild uh, and they knew what it meant. They like that's what I mean, even about Pacino or even about being on How I Met Your Mother, this kind of like. I I'm 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 having this experience of having all these people project shit onto me, and isn't that weird? Like like it almost felt like isn't it weird to be a beetle? Like that's what they were saying. Like isn't that strange? I what I found I found it fascinating about it coming from it as a painter. Like I thinking about it like the way a painter paints or how you're struggling with a piece of art or piece a painting or something like that. I actually I have long conversations my sister's a painter and we talk about the struggles you have with like certain paints and the struggles of like you can see a lot of times especially in paintings you can see where the struggles are you can yeah. see how the person is, is really having a hard time for some reason I think the, the the viewer or the listener of things thinks that everything is supposed to come out like a laser printer or right. come out like Keith Haring who could right. do it like a laser printer and he could just cough it up I I f- the fascinating thing to me was being able to see the creative creative process and also see the dynamics between them, knowing that they're the main guy who kind of kept them in line uh, had passed away years ago. And yeah. then they were kind of on their own. And then there's all this there's you could see the people around them were 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 kind of depending on their paycheck. And next thing you know, you're just these four guys are standing around and like miser- one of them's miserable. You know, George wants to get the fuck out every five minutes and there's their degree miserable. And it felt like I would imagine like on a movie set where there's this you're there's this pressure to perform at the highest level 
with all this stuff around you and all these people who are on the clock and all you can think of is that like in my mind I think of the taxi cab where like the meter's running like everything the meter's running and how are you supposed to execute you know excellence and create how are you supposed to execute creativity with that kind of pressure well you know that there's that great I think it's Leonard Bernstein who said um, what you need for an act of genius is a great idea and not quite enough time Okay. Okay. So, so like okay. the ticking clock. So, so I had 23 days to make both my movies, which is not enough time. No. But because you don't have enough time, you end up, um, you're create like something in your, it, it can pull forth a different level of like creative problem solving. There's a great story about the opera director, Peter Sellers, not the, not the actor who makes a very awkward appearance and get back. Yeah. But, but um, super duper awkward, super awkward. Um, Not as awkward as Ringo saying he farted and then all walked away. That was pretty bad. Oh, I don't remember that. I didn't, I don't oh, think maybe I he hadn't got to it yet. Yeah. He farts and he says, I farted. And then, <laughs> and then and Paul McCartney. Ringo just comes off great. Off. Ringo comes off great in that whole thing. You know who comes off the. Oh, he comes off great because he. you can tell that he knows I am holding on for dear life. You know who comes off great, who probably gets should come off a little bit better, is. Oh, Yoko Ono. It's oh, no, very she, yeah. clear that yeah. Yoko Ono did not break up the Beatles. No, not in no. Well, I mean, that's the, been the story for the for, I you know, know. I that know. That should cinch it all up. And, Linda yeah. also, uh, Linda was impressive, I thought. Of course. No, the whole thing, the dynamics between them all, the dynamics between George and Paul, and yeah. the dynamics that, you know, Paul is holding the whole fucking thing together. Yeah. And it's like, and it's like you're dealing with, you're almost dealing with children. Yeah. And it was, it was, int- it was intense. It was super intense. I don't know what did I said before. Wait, what, what did I, um, I was going to, oh, oh, I was saying, uh, Peter, Peter Sellers. Sellers. You, Peter yeah. Sellers. Yeah. So, so there's this, uh, opera director, Peter Sellers, who, who, um, in his twenties was like this, you know, avant-garde, uh, genius. Like he was directing all these, Really strange, really inventive operas that that got a ton of attention, and he got all these grants, and people were loving him. And very young, he got tapped to direct an opera at the Met. You know, just and, and they took this big swing with bringing him on, and he got fired a couple weeks into rehearsal. And um, a couple years later, he was asked um, about the experience, and he said. You know, it was the first time in my life where I had money. I had real money. And instead of solving problems creatively, I just threw money at them and it ruined me. It ruined my process. So I don't – I think limitation is good. Part of what – okay, so Shakespeare probably wrote as much as he did and as well as he did because he had a company that needed three or four plays from him a year, right? Like he was writing – like he had deadlines, and the Beatles had like two weeks. They were going to put on a show. They, we have to get an album out. We have to we have to have twelve songs in you know two and a half weeks. Like I think that some like I think limitations and deadlines are underrated. It definitely makes you reconsider that whole album. Like when you see it and then you realize that some of it is just like all right, let's just put it on. Like you know, I think that there was. A, I think that it really. It, I th- I think that for, if you're a creative person, the, no matter what you're doing, the Beatles documentary is must watch. I must, agree with you. Must watch. I agree. Yeah. Question for you now. Yeah. I've broken down. You know, I, in my mind, I'm still you know the creative stuff versus the roles that you've taken. Afternoon delight. Yeah. Was a movie that made I was like riveted and it made my tummy hurt 
Yeah. It made my tummy hurt because it was so intense. Yeah. What was it like? Because it's such a, because you were also, you were still on How I Met Your Mother when you did Afternoon Delight. You played Jeff, uh, and you're the husband of the Catherine Hans character, who she's fabulous. Yeah, she's an incredible performance, yeah. What was it like being on that set in that movie? It was just, I mean, it was like, like I tell you, it made my tummy hurt. Yeah, it's designed for maximum discomfort. Yeah. Did, you know, it's like, that's a... Soloway, who directed that, would be happy to hear that that oh, was your response. Tommy, you know? Tommy was Tommy hurt. Yeah, yeah. Um, I. It was funny. I, 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 I knew. Well, I knew Joey Soloway, who directed. I knew um, them from uh, for years, and I was asked to do the table read because they hadn't cast the role yet, and they needed someone to read opposite Catherine, and we had such a like magical table read. And and Catherine afterwards was like, I can't because I was doing How I Met Your Mother, so I wasn't going to be able to do it schedule wise. And Catherine said, oh, I wish you could do this part. And then Soloway was like, I need you to do this part. Let's wow. work it out. So we just got my agents on it. And um, I did I worked seven days a week for three weeks straight. So I did four days on Afternoon Delight and three days on How I Met Your Mother. I worked weekends on on. Um, I think, yeah, I worked weekends on... Um, but it was all in California, Delight. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all in L.A. Okay. We shot in Silver Lake, Afternoon Delight. Um, it was a beautiful experience. Like, Soloway created, like, such a deep, easy... Um, it was just, like, you felt very creatively free on that set. I, I don't recall a single day where I wasn't kind of blissed out working on that show. Um, I do remember... There's that scene where Juno Temple um, kind of comes down when we're all playing poker and oh. we're all drinking and she oh. starts stripping and oh my god and I and I remember I I don't drink anymore but at that time I think I was still I was I would go in and out of drinking but we we all had a couple shots you know <laughs> and um, and I remember I had read the script but I remember for some reason I was so shocked when she started. Stripping, Yeah. Because we were doing the scene, and at some point, Soloway just sent Juno in. Oh. Oh. So you had no idea. I, I, we didn't. It was like, it oh was like, God. oh, she's here. And then she started doing all this shit that I was as shocked as Jeff would have been. Like, I like, and, and the, the cinematographer is a guy named Jimmy Frona, who's awesome. And it was a, he's now gone on to do huge uh, shows, but he... This was a really big thing for him. He was a doc filmmaker. I mean, he was a doc DP. Soloway called him up and he did it. And he had this weird intuitive sense when he's operating the camera. He, Whenever something was real happening with me, I would always feel the camera swing over to catch me. Like he had some freakish oh, yeah. ability to know when someone was having an, an honest response to something. There are a couple of uh, – I haven't seen that movie in years, but there are a couple shots of me – in that scene that I'm like, I was not acting. I was like fully dropped into whatever that was. Um, there were moments of lasciviousness that I could, you could feel like. You well, could you could feel just the feel problems, the, the a couple dudes, a couple drunk married dudes and the power of like a woman kind of 
I mean, she was the powerful one in the room at that point. Like, she had all the power. I mean, I don't know if all the power is the right word, but she certainly was weaponizing her yes. sexuality yes. in that way um, to kind of get revenge, if I remember correctly. I mean, yes. it was like a very complicated. It was vindictive. And it was, and, a, it was, and it was a third act kind of like the first two acts were perfectly structured to make that be like an atomic bomb. You know? It was, it was, I mean, that movie to me was like when I watch it, I'm turning to Hillary every seven minutes and like, this is the most insane movie I've ever seen in my life. It's so intense. It was just so intense. Every every scene built up to this intensity, and then that you guys afternoon delight. And so how do you? So when you go when afternoon delight comes out, how's Ted Mosby? You got, you got a sex scene. You got an intense sex scene. How's Ted the Ted Mosby character looked at after this like you know hairy movie? Are you, I don't are you know. Feeling I mean, any of that? No, it was it was uh, it was what was really fun was it got into Sundance. Joey Soloway actually won Sundance for Best Director. Um, I had been there in 2010 with Happy Thank You, 2012 with Liberal Arts, and then 2013 was uh, Afternoon Delight. So I had been there three out of four years, which was really fun. I was starting yeah. to feel like I kind of knew the lay yeah. of the land there. But I also, when you're a director there. You're selling your movie and you're doing press all – I didn't see any other people's movies when I was there as a director. But when I went as an actor, I did one day of press. But I was there for a couple of days, so I got to see other movies. I got to hang out. I got to um, – it was just really fun. I don't – you know, it's hard for me to gauge like like Afternoon Delight. I mean, it's fun. Like I know Tarantino loved Afternoon Delight, you know, and he was a huge How I Met Your Mother fan, which is which is – great i actually met him he was like really <laughs> kind of gushy to me it was super fun but like a lot of those movies you know afternoon delight was like um another kind of indie gem that you've just got to find it wasn't like it had it didn't become little miss sunshine or anything yeah. it wasn't like everywhere so i'm surprised i know it should have actually but um i think it was a little ahead of its time you know i think that movie's probably still really watchable um yeah because i didn't i don't feel like it it rattled the cages that much i mean i i i do still hear from people who love that movie and love my performance in it so it certainly um was a good thing for me to have you know on my reel um it's a i mean it's an intense movie intense intense movie movie, intense movie how do you feel? I mean, with I mean, it brings me to like what's going on now with the pandemic and the coronavirus. I was thinking about how this impacts, you know, how we're going to be watching movies, yeah. how we're going to be going to Broadway and plays. What is your sense in terms of the future of film and, and Broadway acting? Because I mean, this is your thing. You've been in this game. You you've been in this game. You have. You're like I said. They didn't find you at a mall. You you right. actually worked on stage. You have uh-huh. the chops. You've done it all. What's going to happen to movies in in, in Broadway? I, I I couldn't even begin to to predict. I mean, truly, I don't I don't know. I I, I think there's something both liberating and sad about the idea that we all have these little home entertainment caves that we just do everything in because I know there's nothing more thrilling as a filmmaker than premiering your your movie that you wrote and directed you know as a total labor of love premiering at the Eccles Theater which seats like I don't know 1100 1200 people packed audience shoulder to shoulder watching your movie for the first time I can't I can't overstate how much of a thrill that is and um 
it would be real sad to me if we didn't get those communal experiences to say nothing of the theater, which is that all the time. Um, I think that humans have a need to, to sit shoulder to shoulder and experience art together. I don't know that that's going to go away. Um, I'm, I'm certainly pro mask from a health perspective, but anti mask from a like comfort perspective. Like I don't like to sit and watch a two and a half hour play wearing a mask. Um, but I also believe, you know, we got to keep each other safe. So, um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think we're still in this thing and, and, we don't really know what it's going to look like when we reemerge. I, I almost feel like, yeah, I almost feel like it's going to not just everything's going to be back to normal. It's just going to affect the way we view things. I was actually talking to my friend Nico. He's a set photographer. He's been on a ton of movies. He he was a set photographer on West Side Story, and we actually got to I got to cook for some of the actors who were from the New York City Ballet. Some of them had to move back home. Wow, yeah. Some of these guys who were like professional New York City ballet dancers, they had to move back home. Yeah, and it it also kind of makes me think about it and in terms of you know how things develop. Like I part of me thinks that maybe maybe you're just going to have a different, you're going to have a smaller, more liberal audience going to Broadway. Like you're going to have more of that kind that that idea of I don't know I'm not be honest with you I'm not 100% sure but what I do know is back in the day and probably when you remember this is there was a writer's strike years and years ago and because of the writer's strike that's why we have I mean this is the simplistic you know story but that's the reason why we have all this uh, uh, reality TV reality TV was a uh, 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 a byproduct of a writer's strike and now it's become it didn't just go away it's just kind of morphed into normal life so i it makes me think about something like that and how these kinds of things affect how we view things and make changes yeah i mean it the 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 hard thing is we're not uh you know in the crystal ball business like right. i don't know i don't know what it's going to look like when it shakes out i I think podcasting is not going anywhere anytime soon. I mean, you seem like this is a safe gig, like around that. Um, I got two, I'm on two podcasts. Yeah, when I'm yeah. not making knives, it's like ridiculous. Yeah, no, but I, I, I mean, it makes, it makes sense. I'm a I'm a voice on a Netflix show, an animated show called Centaur World, which is bonkers, fun, bananas, great show. I mean, that's something, you know, that you can very safely do. Um, Entertainment's not going away. I mean, certainly, you know, like it's an oft repeated thing, but like during the Great Depression, like movies were, everyone was obsessed with movies because people want diversion. They want to feel that they're somewhere other than reality. Well, because, I mean, obviously just the approach, I'm I'm saying the the approach has got to change. And I wonder how the approach changes affects uh, the re- the rest of things. Uh, Nico was on uh, the new Netflix movie um, Don't Look Up, and mm-hmm. he filmed it. They filmed it in the be- in the in the height of the first wave, uh-huh. and he said the he was a set photographer, and he says the the COVID protocols were astron the cost was astronomical, and yeah, what they had to percent of every budget. When they had to do, I mean, what they had to do in order to keep everybody safe to make that movie was like Herculean. Yeah, Herculean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I just wonder, and then, you know, I just wonder how the approach to these types of entertainment is going to change. 
that too big of a question? Well, I, it's an impossible one for me to answer. I mean, I uh, I don't know. I mean, you can kind of look at how the you know how we've done it. How I don't know that adding twenty percent to every budget is feasible. Go, right. you know, for the rest of time. Like, um, I mean, you can't make liberal arts with a COVID code, a COVID protocol. Well, no, I mean, you could, you just have to, you almost have to get another producer to cover the, you know, COVID costs, <laughs> you know, it's, um, so I don't really know, but I do, I do know that, uh, artists and I'm not talking about, you know, studios and multinational corporations. I'm just talking about lone artists with, with a voice and an idea, um, are incredibly resilient and adaptable and they find a way. So I, I do, I don't fear for, uh, you know, the extinction of art and storytelling is it's not going away. It's it's like, it's not going anywhere. So it's just a matter of like the form it's going to take. It's like, you know, my friend always says like movies aren't dying. They're just changing. The movie business isn't dying. It's changing. I almost look forward to seeing that change because it's the approach is what it's going to be and the direction and it might lead to something kind of nice as opposed to yeah i mean some some of the 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 things it's not all entropy and disaster you know like some of the things end up being kind of interesting don't watch don't look up then yeah i know i hear i I need to watch it sure jeff did we talk about kenyan enough let's talk about kenyan let's talk about kenyan what do you want to know what do I want to know about you? What do you know about it? You're sending someone to Canyon? What do you want to know about it? I, I did just uh, write a recommendation for my friend Maddie's kid, and he got in early decision, which was a thrill. My, I don't think my kid wants to go to Canyon. She wants How? to, and we don't want, and we don't want her to do anything she doesn't want to do. Well, I feel like I feel like it's that, that's for, a, that's heavy. My dad went to Canyon, and I thought it was heavy, but to have two two Kenyan grads for parents is a heavy thing well you know you actually met lila when she was younger i guess that was back in 2012 at a reunion yeah the reunion yeah she liked it but it's like she also wants to be in something a little bit more metropolitan and i don't think and i've always been everything's more metropolitan than kenyans 100 percent. but i mean i just you know it's just not it's not for her so at the same time i never really felt like you know i i want whatever she wants to do it's fine by me i don't really give a shit yeah you know so what's so you've just wrapped Hunters. What do you got going on next? What's next for Josh Radner? Um, I'm waiting to hear if I got something that I can't talk about because okay. of superstition. Um, a te- you know a, an acting thing that would be fun, and if uh, and if it doesn't happen, that's also okay. Um, I wrote a 1991 high school movie to be shot in my hometown that I'm very excited about. And uh, we're just about ready to go kind of seek some some money for it to see if we can make it. Um, it's been a long time. I, you know, Liberal Arts was the last movie I directed. I directed a couple music videos, which I had a blast with. But um, I haven't been behind the camera on a feature film for a long time. So I'm really excited about that. Um, I've got a play that I'm very excited about that we've done a couple readings of that um, there's some interest in doing a production of it. Um and I've got 60 to, you know, 50 or 60 songs, original songs that I need to, you know, figure out how best to record and release. Um, m- music is like, I didn't discover I could write songs until I was 
40 years old, you know, like so I have it's a, a problem new thing with this. for me, but it's you have a problem with it. I have a problem with this because I specific I heard you on some interview saying you just picked a guitar up. I know that I saw you at Kenyon College with a guitar. No, no, no. You saw me like holding Sam Reed's guitar and Sam teaching me like how to play a D chord and me not playing it well. So I knew how to play like five chords, but I could not strum. I could like I could not do anything. You know, being able to play guitar was not something that happened until a couple of years ago. So you weren't going to be playing in Green Cacat? <laughs> no. College. <laughs> Who was Green Cacat? Sam, Sam Reed, Gareth. Gareth. I, I don't Taylor. Remember. Taylor don't, was the drummer. And the, the funny thing is, so we had a... Oh, and Gene. Fr- Wasn't Gene in Green Cacat? Gene might have been in Green Cacat. Yeah. But Green Cacat was our freshman year band. And uh, yeah. on McBride. And everyone was on our hall. Look, our, I love all those guys. Not a good band name. Well, here's the funny part. Here's the funny part. So my my roommates, my roommates uh, Jamie and Kevin, decided. So you were to, in a triple. Were you second floor or first floor? You were second floor. Well, first first year first year I was in a triple with uh, Miles Van Rensselaer. Just the two of you. Yeah, and then and then when I got to be a, when I was a, a June, I, I don't remember. At some point, I befriended Kevin, and I think it was freshman year. I Kevin Sullivan and Jamie and and Evan Mall started a band, and they decided to name it Blue Baballs, just to kind of <laughs> fuck with Green Cat. And I remember that the first sculpture I ever sold. I was I had I sold a sculpture and I had enough money to get a keg and I did a keg party at the KC and I was the only per, as the only freshman to ever do that and also have four bands we had four bands play and I got Green Cacat to play Blue Balls and then there was two other bands I forgot their names This was our freshman year This was our freshman year Freshman year yeah because I sold the sculpture freshman year Wow and I remember Sam Reed coming up to me and he says Sam Reed of Green Cacat says to me I think is are the guys from Blue Baballs mad at me or something? <laughs> and I said, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "Well, you know, they named their band Blue Baballs, and we're Green Cacat." And I was just like, "Listen, just calm down. It's just, it's just fucking guys just making a joke. Just relax." But I just wow. remember this. I remember their, the the music. Uh, the I music also I, Sam Reed was one of the greatest eighteen year old guitarists I've ever seen. Like unbelievable, I mean, looking like he was twelve. Yeah. I mean, he was. Yeah. I mean, unbelievable. I yeah. mean, the music. I, I definitely. Developed a musical taste at Kenyon. I didn't oh, have a sure. musical taste. Yeah, I didn't have. A I mean, I, I you know Kip Conlon, who's still a dear friend of mine. I just saw him the other night in New York, um, but I didn't. I mean, he was like my very proper introduction to Leonard Cohen, Tom Waits, uh, different Dylan than I knew. Like, I mean, people. That's the cool thing about you go to a school like Kenyon, and everyone comes armed with their different books yeah. they know and the music they love and. You just get influenced. How do you think that influenced your work now in terms of the new album, the new solo EP, uh, One More Thing, and I'll Let You Go? How do you think your musical taste from Kenyon affected that? Because, I mean, all of your music, especially with uh, Radner and Lee and the new album, it is very folk-driven. It's very folk-driven. Yeah, it's like folk Americana. I mean, I have a very – and maybe this is because I started acting in musical theater, but, like, I have a very, very strong – uh, need for like good melody, like hummable mm-hmm. kind of strong melodic core. And I also think, you know, I've always known, I've always had very strong taste in music. Like I like this or I don't like this. Like I'm very clear on what I like. And a lot of what I like is narrative driven, uh, lyrical, great melodies. Like I love, did you watch the Ken Burns country music documentary? 
No. Phenomenal. Worth okay. watching. But I love um, I love folk music. I grew up with a lot of, you know, my dad was really into Dylan and Jim Croce. And um, my mom loved John Denver and Joni Mitchell and um, Joan Baez. I mean, I, I have this very strong, Peter, Paul and Mary, like this very strong uh, childhood kind of nostalgic feeling about folk music. Hmm. And so when I discovered, you know, in a way, being a, like a more novice guitarist, um, if you, you know, folk songs are generally like two, three and four chords. They're not that hard to play. And they're, they're a real simple melody where you can put a lot of lyrics on top of. So basically, once I learned how to craft a melody and then what I felt uh like I really was good at just before I, without even having much experience as a songwriter, I've always loved rhythm. I've always loved words. I've always loved rhyming. So, and I'm, and I'm a writer. So I knew how to tell a story in three minutes, four minutes. Like I knew, I knew the, the narrative arc and path to get me there. So some of the things I had were really helpful for me as a, as a songwriter and other things I had to learn. And Ben was like, I got, you know, the greatest private, you know, couple years of tutorial songwriting tutorial you can imagine. Just to finish up my whole concept of you with place, Apocalyptic Love Song is one of my favorite songs because it's the end of place. Apocalyptic yeah. Love Song on the new album, uh, One More and I'll Let You Go, is it's 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 one of the things is funny and I wonder why. I don't know why I think it's funny. It's hard for me to explain it, but you're 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 professing your love. Not I don't know if you're professing your love. You're professing the fact that you want to be with this person, and you're willing to do all these things. And then at the very end, you're going to jump into you know jump and break your legs and drive a bike and steal a car and all this. But at the end is instead of saying I'm in love with you, it's like I would prefer to be with you at the end of the world. Yeah, I fucking love that. I, it's <laughs> hilarious, but it's to me, it's like that's my. It's the end of cre It's the end of place. Yeah, I like that because there is a kind of um, there's jokes in my songs. You know, yeah. they're, they're sometimes subtle, but I'd prefer to be with you. Yeah. It's kind of a it's a joke, but but it's also that's. I mean, that's quite a dark song, and and you know, it's a climate change song. Essentially, it's like, look, if we're going down. In my last moments, I'd really, I, I, I want to be with you. And, and it's a real catalog of all the calamities that we're facing. But the desperateness of like the action, the desperateness of the action of what you're willing to do, except for profess your love. <laughs> well, I never thought of it that way, but that's probably. I mean, better, it's true. It's just, just like you're willing to fucking break your legs. Yeah. To yeah. steal cars, to commit crimes, to well, fight also, off demons. Have you but, seen the cover of the album? It's yeah, like, it's uh, great. Romain Laurent is this artist, and I and I got the image from him. But it's like it kind of looks like California. You got these hills, yeah. and then in the distance, it looks like either a sunset or a sunrise that's either polluted, or it looks like there's a fire on the horizon. And then there are these telephone wires and there's a person, there's a man sitting perched atop one of the telephone wires, like precariously, to right. say the least. And I really love that image. And I think it goes along so well with Apocalyptic Love Song is like that, that kind of notion of end of place. Like, where are we? We're dislocated. Place doesn't matter anymore. Um, there's no such thing as seasons. I mean, climate change is a dislocating kind of affair you know it's it it yeah. demolishes our sense of a uh, uh, place as, as we once knew it 
demolishing our place as we once knew it. Josh Radner, you've done it again. <laughs> I, I can't thank you enough for being so flexible in, in, in coming on to the podcast. Oh, and I'm so it's sorry amazing. we had to reschedule so many Dude, times. It you don't have to anything to... to apologize to me for. You have an open door policy with me. Anytime you want to just shoot the shit, just give me a text and we'll get you squared away. And Thanks, Ross. How far are you out in New York, by the way, you and Hillary? We are 45 minutes by train. Okay, if in, I'm in New York in the spring, can we grab a meal? I'd love it. To do I got a great things? idea. I got a great yeah. idea. I've had this idea in mind. I'm not pitching you. I'm not pitching you. I always think that there, I've talked to some of the best blacksmiths in the world, and I always thought there needs to be a good blacksmith movie. And I'm convinced that a good blacksmith movie would be like the new, it'd be the the best thing. None of this fooling around with horseshoes and the bullshit with the wily e. coyote. None of that bullshit. Why don't you come up here and you come up here and we'll make a knife. I'm a, you forge a knife or you forge oh, yeah. a, whatever you want. I'll achieve your blacksmithing class. You'll come up here. We'll fool around. You'll see. And see if the, a narrative emerges. Well, here's the thing. Blacksmithing, what I've been saying forever, it's the it's my it's my like late in life philosophy of like my life is now all blacksmithing because it's very like it's the execution of creativity with discipline. Yeah. And it's very forward thinking. There's no going backwards. And right. it's very thoughtful and it's very philosophical and it's very thing. I think you'd be right up your alley. All right. Those, I'm, those... I'm game. I All right. It. And I, I need to get a fader knife at some point, too. So I got you, dude. I All got right. you. Give me your All address. Right. I got you. I got to take right. care of you. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Guys, everybody, you know Josh Radner. You know him from everything. I want you to for sure... Go get Hunters and watch Hunters and tell me all about it. I also want you to see Afternoon Delight and don't tell me that your tummy hurts because I'm already telling I'm telling you it's going to happen. Josh Radner's the best. Class of 96 from Kenyon College. Go get his solo album EP one more and I'll let you go. Go get Golden State. My wife got us Golden State Josh Radner sunglasses. I'm wearing them. I'm wearing them. I can't thank you enough, Josh, for being here. Thank you so much. Oh, man, Jeff. Great to, great to reconnect, and uh, we'll see you soon. You're the man. All right, guys. We will see you next week. Happy New Year. The Full Blast Podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all-natural, food-safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.